This is Channel 253. In this episode of Interchangeable White Ladies. I tell my students, when you see refugees, you can almost guarantee that the United States has bombed that country. Um, like that's what that means. And so, and refugees we know are placed when they're brought into this country are placed in extreme poverty. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that is perpet like that's where that wealth gap comes from. Channel 253 is a member supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. One, two, two. interchangeable. White ladies! One, two, two. interchangeable. White ladies! Interchangeable. Interchangeable. White ladies! Welcome to the Interchangeable White Ladies Podcast. I'm Hope. I'm Megan, and today's essential question is, how can we intentionally highlight, honor, and celebrate AAPI folks, contemporary or historical, during the month of May? In the same way that we were talking and discussing the importance of Black History Month and Women's History Month, and the fact that we want to normalize it to become not a thing you just talk about for one month of the year, we also are approaching our conversation about AAPI um, month as well. And so kind of framing that for our group today or for our listeners today, um, there's a lot of things we talk about, wrestle with, because even as I say AAPI, I'm like thinking about all the things that I've been reading as of late (laughs) and even just like the problematic nature of that term. But yet, like, how do we reconcile with, like, what do we replace it with and and who gets to replace it and who doesn't and and so on. Mm -hmm. So thinking about that in the backgrounds. But before we get there, we actually have a new segment that we're going to start our episode with. Megan, are you ready for this new segment? So excited. Absolutely excited. So this segment is called Yeah, No, Yeah. Interchangeable. And really, it's a chance for us to have a little bit of a temperature check on our our audience or our guest. So that would be you today, Megan. You're going to be our guest for this segment. All right. Let's see so, how it goes. So listeners, and also for you, Megan, I just want to remind you um, that yeah means yeah. So you're going to answer appropriately if, if it's a yeah for you. No means no. No, yeah means sure. Yeah, no means no. Yeah, no for sure means yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah means no. Yeah, no, yeah means I'm willing to do it. And no, yeah, no, that means there's no way you're going to do it. Okay, so just respond mm-hmm. accordingly to that because I know yeah. you've got that memorized already. Like it's just in your DNA. It's in um, my DNA. Yeah. Okay. So let's kind of ease into it. So first of all, socks with sandals. No, no. Oh, very, oh, very bold. Like not even, okay. Okay. No. Uh, summer allergies. Oh no. Okay. okay. No. Pumpkin spice lattes in May. Oh no. Yeah. No. Great, great. Uh, bringing a watermelon and a six pack of White Claw to a summer barbecue. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> mm, good answer, good answer. Mm-hmm. And lastly, uh, people who celebrate or honor Women's History Month but have never considered honoring AAPI Month. Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> Fantastic, fantastic. Yeah, and no. hopefully listeners knew exactly what you meant as you shared your opinions on each of those pieces. <laughs> How'd that feel for you, Megan? It just felt um, like I was embodying who I was meant to be, mm-hmm. you know? Really, truly, I feel like I've never spoken more clearly in my life. 
I agree. I agree. It was very, very succinct, very clear. We all knew exactly what you meant each time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so thinking about the history of AAPI Month, you're a resident historian, I mean, on this podcast. So I expect a, a good history lesson here today. Um. So, oh, ooh, that's like high praise. Like I'll do my best to meet the expectations. I mean, you're known at Bowling 2016 just watches set for me. and nerd for um, <laughs> Do I even get to call myself a historian if I don't do well? Um, so let's see how I can do. Um, I'm going to need you to grade me at the end of it on the okay. Bain scale. That'd the be bear, great. Like below, approaching. Yeah. Yep. Got you. Meeting so expectations. much like any of the um, months that we have talked about previously, AAPI month started as just a week right? Honoring, um, Carter started it in 1979, declared AAPI week. And then in 1992, Congress established AAPI month. Um, and so it kind of started as a week turned into a month. And that's kind of what we know to be for like black history month and women's history month. And I want to be clear, AAPI, it's AAPI Heritage Month. Mm -hmm. So not, um, it is not History Month. It is Heritage Month. It is yep. meant to celebrate Asian American and Pacific Islander heritage in this country. Um, and so that's kind of a, an interesting change that um, we could unpack on this episode of why do we think that it is heritage rather than History Month. But before that, um, just kind of unpacking, Hope kind of talked about the problematic nature of the, um, even just the name of AAPI and how it is emblematic of the colonization of these countries. And honestly, it's very symbolic of how um, colonizers and essentially white people have tried to categorize people, even though by categorizing people, it is very problematic. Um, and so we want to really acknowledge that first and foremost, the word Asian encompasses so many different cultures and people and heritages and um and traditions, traditions languages, and yeah. languages and it's like it it's there by having a conversation about Asian Americans you could be having very very different conversations um and then hope you sent me a uh, um some information about the the PI part of it do you want to kind of jump into why the Pacific Islander part of AAPI is problematic yeah. And actually, before I do that, one of the things I was also um, reading about in prep for the show is is also just thinking about the role of the government census in terms of, of organizing yeah. people and grouping and categorizing. And again, as a historian, <laughs> you actually probably could speak to the consensus to the census part of it better. But I found that quite interesting. Like in the 60s, essentially, that term was used unifying. And from what I've read, coming out of the, the different Asian American groups as a way to create unity again, uh, amongst these groups that were often like disenfranchised from each other and kind of seen in, in isolation. Um, and then in the 80s, that term expanded to include Pacific Islanders. And then in 1997, essentially, they went back to um, separating those groups out. So it's interesting to think even like the switch as people are learning things and growing, like how do we respond, adjust our policies, our practices, the way that we take census of folks. And then on the other hand, um, do we have a long way to go, right? And so I yeah. think that was the thing that struck me um, as I was 
on, on Twitter and then on TikTok, um, thinking about this because I really hadn't heard it expressed in this way. And so, um, yeah, that's why I sent it to Megan. So essentially, and we'll link to it in the show notes here, but talking about that PI part. So Pacific Islander and really thinking about the three specific areas that colonizers just named Pacific Islands and because of convenience, right? Mm-hmm. So instead of acknowledging that each of these places had its own culture and community, language, et cetera, um, they just lumped them all together for the ease of, you know, white English and white colonizers. Yeah. Uh, you had a really nice connection with Curry. Do you want to talk a little bit more yeah. about that? So, I mean, it makes me think about how I don't think a lot of people realize that we call curry, like the foods curry, because of colonization. So it was that these white people came and colonized these areas that ate food that they were not used to, right? Spices that they were not used to. And these cultures did not call those foods curry, right? They had their own individual distinct names in the same way that we have their own distinct names for foods that we eat in our cultures. And so we call those curries because of colonization. It is just the way that white people, when coming into the country, they had never seen these foods before. And so they just called them curry. So the reason we call like it's Indian curry and Thai curry and Japanese Mm. curry, those are all very different and distinct spices and foods to those cultures. Um, And I just, when I learned that it was, it made absolute sense, right? Like it was like, oh yeah. But then also how problematic it is, right? Because Mm -hmm. it's all, it's, it's categorization. And, and you brought up the census and how on the census, how um, the the counting and categorization of <clears throat> people of color, black and brown people on the census, it's oftentimes done and has changed because of the convenience and the needs yeah. of the white supremacist system, right? So um, as it has become the needs of what, of like, I guess, optics of mm-hmm. who are we going to um, place next to white people in terms of the hierarchy. It, it makes me think of Cast, right? If you haven't yeah, gone sure. to that episode about Cast, our book club um, episode, go do that because it's it's absolutely because of that. It's it, the proximity to whiteness is why um, it has changed on the census. I, I even think about why Chinese immigrants were allowed back into the country, right? There was the Chinese Exclusion Act, which literally made Chinese people the first illegal immigrants, like the true first illegal immigrants in this country um, were Chinese immigrants after the railroads. And it was based because, and I don't know, this might sound familiar, that white people were upset that Chinese immigrants were taking their jobs Mm -hmm. um, after the railroad was complete, right? The Transcontinental Railroad. And white people were really angry because they felt that Chinese immigrants were stealing their jobs. And so then this anger, and honestly, that was fueled by rhetoric of Mm -hmm. politicians, um, led to the Chinese Exclusion Act, which made it illegal for Chinese immigrants to enter the country. And that was true up until World War II. And then it was 
the the American government recognized that, oh my gosh, we need to have China as an ally in order to fight the Imperial Japan. And so because they needed China as an ally, they realized, oof, probably not good optics to have the Chinese Exclusion Act on the books. And so then they allowed a hundred- Shame bell, shame bell. Shame bell. Um, and so then, and and y'all, it's not that they opened up immigration to China fully. It was, I think it's that they allowed 110 Chinese immigrants a year into the United States. And that You're was saying. kind of what ended the Chinese Exclusion Act. And, and y'all, it was just because white people needed something from them, which yeah. if we look at the history of immigration, like, especially in the... AAPI communities. Um, that's what has been the motivation. It's either been we need something from you, or we did something so dirty to your mm. country mm. that we have yeah. to allow refugees in. Mm. Right. And so that's why that is that is the history of of Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in this country, right? Mm. It's it's either listen, we need you because it's going to make us look good and it's going to actually mm-hmm. help us be more racist and oppressive to black Americans yeah. by having you in this country. Or, oof, like we destroyed, we destroyed your country. So now we are going to let refugees in. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it that is the heritage and that's what has built um honestly like in many ways the identity of asian americans in the eyes of white people i want to be very clear about that like the perception of asian americans um through the eyes of white supremacy mhm yeah i appreciate that you're making that distinction because i think as we talk about this and try to be thoughtful there're certainly things we're going to leave out or we'll leave this episode and and wish that we had said or had wrestled with or talked more about because there's just so many components and so many things to to think through and so i'm wondering in understanding that history of that term like how do you reconcile using it today i know in the in the past we've talked about the term bipoc and we've had guests on the show yeah. who unpacked it as like this is a great term to use we've had other guests who are like no, do not use this. Um, and so I'm curious about our framing today. And as we talk, where are you at in, in, in terms of understanding this term, using it? Um, and then also, what does that mean for the work that we do? Yeah. I think that before we jump too far into this yeah. topic, I just want to talk about my own um, my own identity within this conversation. So I am um, a quarter Japanese. So I am a part of the Asian American community. Um, but in a very like peripheral way, I think because I present as white in many situations, I was actually talking, some of my students were asking me about this, um, in one of our previous lessons. And it's, um, I, I look at, or I have experienced this in the degree of white, the whiteness of the space that I'm occupying, Mm. the more white the spaces that I am occupying, the more I am viewed as, and I feel as though I am a person of color. Um, Like that racial, I have like very much racial ambiguity where people don't quite know how to place me. Um, But I have witnessed like in my family's history the the white supremacy and its impact on 
my family's heritage, right? The impact on my grandmother, my Japanese grandmother and my um, half Japanese father. And I, I have experienced that. I have heard stories about how um, my grandma, she, so my grandmother never taught her children Japanese, right? Like my grandma never, my, my grandma didn't cook Japanese food for her children until my dad was much older. Mm-hmm. Like um, my dad, I was talking to him last night about this and he was like, yeah, she was like American through and through. Like she leaned into it, right? The assimilation that was yeah. necessary because she, um, she married a GI, right? They, they got married. He met her on base over in, um, Tokyo, Japan. And when they got married, she wanted to be seen as, um, or at least I should say that her actions definitely, I've never heard her say this. Yeah. Um, but her actions tell the story of a woman who desperately wanted her children, at least to be seen as American, um, and what that means is that I, like my, my dad never learned Japanese. It's something that he is, I know is sad about. He has tried to learn. Right. But, um, and so that was never passed on. It was not the, so then never passed on to me. And so I have a really, um, interesting relationship with this. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and one thing you just said, which really stood out to me, um, in sharing your story. So thanks for sharing your story with me and with listeners. I think your point about assimilation out of necessity. Yeah. And I think that's also part of this, right? Um, in some, on the one hand, I think about the notion of assimilation as, um, awful and, and also, but also there's the, the element of like necessity. What does it mean for survival? And as we've talked about, and now thinking about the framing of caste, what does it mean to move caste or to have access mm-hmm. to privileges, to have access to resources? That seems like a, a, a typical, like in human nature, right? And you'd want that for yourself. You want that for your kids. Um, on the other hand, there's a bit of privilege that comes with assimilating, right? With people not noticing Absolutely. that you are other, but again, that's even problematic. Even saying that I'm like, ah, because othering is we know that that's that's part of the that's part of this whole problem right as well and yeah. so I just kind of wrestling with those pieces I just want to throw that out there as yeah well. and I think that I have just and I'm still on this journey I'm no by no means an expert I am by no means somebody that's going to come on to this episode and speak as an authority on the Asian American experience because I'm not and I'm still to this day unpacking the um the experience of growing up in a white supremacist world and how I have internalized that white Mm -hmm. supremacy and how I, and I was just thinking like, I, when I was in, especially in high school, and this is no shame to my friend group, but how the jokes that would be made, um, and, and like, to be very clear, like the race Asian, the racist Asian jokes that would be made. And then like laughing and joking that like, oh, only 25% of me can be offended. Mm-hmm. Right. And how I internalized that and my Japanese heritage became a novelty almost. So it was kind of like this novel part of myself and it, but it was absolutely placed as it, in this, these white spaces as, um, the, the brunt of the joke 
almost. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like it was like this thing that I could put on and it'd be funny. And, but if I wanted to be taken seriously or if I wanted to assimilate, I would put that part of myself away. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's absolute privilege in that. And I also think that the reality of the Asian American experience is in the terms of caste system, the really difficult and problematic place that puts Asian Americans in trying to have proximity to whiteness, right? As, as whiteness is, what's the word I'm looking for? Like whiteness is the pinnacle. And because white people have needed Asian Americans to get ahead or for their own agenda, it has made Asian Americans have to choose whether they are going to embrace the proximity to whiteness or, um, or reject that and risk losing the privilege and power that comes with that. If that mm-hmm. makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's actually a great place to pause and we'll come right back. Hi Hope. Hey Megan. So how's life in Abu Dhabi? Uh, hot, sunny, sandy, and 99 degrees. <laughs> Ooh, the exact opposite here in Tacoma. Cold, cloudy, and really wet. <laughs> well, this is part of the fun of living overseas. I mean, it is amazing teaching abroad, as you know. I can't say enough about the experience. Being in a different place for an extended period of time, experiencing a variety of cultures. I'm in the best of both worlds. I love my job, and I have amazing opportunities. Man, my jealousy is growing. So I actually have a coworker who's interested in teaching abroad and I was telling them about your and Nate's experience. If she wants to teach abroad, what should she do? That's actually easy. She should go to searchassociates.com and start her search today. Search Associates works with 800 schools in 125 countries. So there are many, many places to choose from depending on our interests. Whew, that is a lot of options. Is it overwhelming? Not at all. The awesome thing about it is when you sign up using Search Associates, you are assigned an associate who works directly with you to get to know your interests and what you're looking for, and they'll help you find the perfect fit. It couldn't be easier. More than 40,000 highly qualified teachers, administrators, counselors, librarians, interns, and other educators have used Search Associates to find positions in top K-12 international schools. Wait, wait, wait. So any teacher can sign up? Yes, emphasis on any. Search Associates is committed to finding placements for teachers of diverse backgrounds. They're doing the work internally as an organization and also within the international schools community. They want to use their position to influence changes at schools they work with as well and support diverse candidates in those schools. You know, that's a really great approach. It is. So if you're ready to make that move, come across the world, come overseas, do what Nate and I did, and trust the expert guidance of Search Associates. To start your journey, visit searchassociates.com. Thank you, Search Associates, for helping us live our dream and teach abroad. And thank you for your support of this podcast. Okay, we're coming back, and there's a lot on our plate, table, whatever metaphor you feel like using in this case. (laughs) Um, And this is kind of heavy at the same time, you know, as we're leading or as we're going through this conversation, we are headed into like, what can you do this month in order to honor the diversity and just the awesomeness and the contributions of Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders in the United States, and particularly the notion of heritage versus uh, history month. So we actually have a number of things to talk through. Is there actually really fast? You you kind of um, hinted at this in, in telling your own story. Why do you think using the term heritage is so significant for this this month rather than using history in the way that we used it for Black History Month or Women's History Month? Any hot takes? I 
I think that this country is still coming to terms with acknowledging the like horrific oppressive history of Asian Americans mm-hmm. and and Pacific Islanders in this country. I I don't think that um this country has acknowledged it fully, right? Like I I always think of the Japanese American internment camps, yeah. right? Where I I just um, it hasn't been until recently, the past couple like decades, that the federal government has even acknowledged some of the really horrific things. I, th- it wasn't until the Trump era, right? It was his um, Secretary of Transportation. She was the one, the very first federal government official that honored the Chinese immigrants' role in the Transcontinental Railroad. Mm officially formally like that was a couple years ago and and so I just I wonder and I don't know for sure I I I really now want to like dive into it but I wonder if that's part of it like that we as a as a country are not yet um fully ready to have that conversation um about the horrific treatment of Asian immigrants in this country well, another thing I was kind of thinking about is um, also the fact of like the the fact that the term and this month is actually recognizing a lot of different groups, as we talked about at the, at the top of this. Yeah. And so I wonder if if framing it as heritage is really kind of trying to trying to attempting to embrace the fact that there's so many different pockets, that there's so many different influences, um, there's so many different areas that we could talk about. And I wonder, I, in my mind, I keep thinking about it as like a hyphen, right? Um, hyphen American, uh, so Asian American. And so I, I just keep thinking about this, like um, this piece. And I wonder if heritage is also part of that. I mean, maybe that's me yeah. assuming best intent, you know, like goodwill <laughs> <I> know. <laughs> of the situation, which I is not, I mean, it's and not I'm like, like you're yes, like, I, no. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I wonder if that's because rather than saying like, because I'm still trying to reconcile, well, then why can we say Women's History Month? It's not like all women are the same, right? So why can we say yeah. that and, and look at the history of women? But if you're looking from that narrow lens, you're like, women can vote now, except black women. Uh, women can do this, except these women. But there's there's some kind of timeline. I don't know. And then in terms of Black History Month, because when you're talking about atrocities done to communities, I immediately, of course, think about you know, our own history with, with Black Americans. And so, yeah. you know, I'm kind of wrestling with that. Anyway, I just want to throw that out there as I wonder why, I, I I don't even know if we can get to a real answer in terms of heritage, if it's, if it has its own limitations or if it opens the door for something different for us. I think, so honestly, and I don't know, right? But I think that in my mind, heritage makes me think of the now and the mm. future and history mm. makes you for, like focus, forces you to think about the past. And I, yeah. and I don't know the reason behind it, but, um, it's, it's absolutely a distinction that was made that is different than the, the other two months that we've talked about. Mm-hmm. And it is making me think like, oh, I want to really unpack that more mm-hmm. as I move forward, because I wonder what the reasoning behind it is. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I think maybe for our listeners, that's part of our challenge today is in having these conversations, in thinking about the month of May, in trying to honor different Asian American Pacific Islander voices, people, um, celebrities, writers, authors, et cetera. How do we how do we understand all these pieces and then also really take the time to delve into what what that looks like and that it is not just like a blanket statement. So if you're very passionate about understanding in the Northwest, we have a, a large Cambodian population. Um, I know on Nerd Farm pod, podcast, there's been a guest multiple times talking about the issues around the Cambodian com- 
uh, community in Washington state and around the country. And so taking yeah. time to learn those stories and to understand those pieces, um, I think it's really easy just to lump it all together, as we've said, rather than looking and trying to understand these different elements and, and building a, a bigger truth or a bigger understanding of the world. Yeah, absolutely. And I, cause I think about how this, the concept of like the model minority myth mm -hmm. and this idea of how Asian Americans, many Asian Americans are positioned in this like model minority, right? Where it's like they have done it right and they're successful. And these figures about um, Asian American households are the highest median house like income in the country, right? And it's this concept, the, the model minority myth is this concept that like Asian success is weaponized mm -hmm. against Black, Brown, and Native people. Um and it's it's kind of used as an excuse for oppressive systems yeah. um, because it's like, well, they point to these Asian Americans and that's where I was meaning where like white people allow Asian Americans to have close proximity to whiteness is because that they can then point to their success and be like, well, why can't you do it? They're doing it. Yeah, these are immigrants. Right. They came from nothing. Um, and and so it's it's this kind of really problematic thing that white people do in this country um, and what to weaponize Asian success, but also by not focusing on the history of um, AAPI, it it is a way to erase the different experiences of Asian immigrants, right? So mm -hmm. um, like from, so from 1965 to 2015, like Asian immigrants went from 1.3 million in this country to 18 million. So in that span of time from 65 to 2015. And, and to, to look at that, half of those, like the visas and immigrants that were allowed in um, to the country had bachelor's degrees or higher. So 50% of those um, almost like, 16.5 million Asian immigrants had bachelor's degree or higher and only 16% of them had less than a high school degree. And so we have to look at who is being allowed into the country from these right. Asian countries and how are they being set up for success? Um, right. So it's like, we are cherry picking from these countries, bringing them in as immigrants and then pointing to them as somehow the same to black Americans yeah. who were forced and stolen and brought here and enslaved. And then after that, um, horrifically treated and segregated through Jim Crow laws and, 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 right. So like, it's a vastly different experience yet like it's being weaponized against them, right? Like it, it's, um, when I talk about the proximity to whiteness, that's what I, that's what I'm referencing mm -hmm. is that mm -hmm. um, experience. But also, or, oh, go ahead. Go no, ahead. Go, no, please. Oh, I was going to say, but also by doing that, it's ignoring the, that the fact that in like AAPI communities um, Asian Americans have the biggest wealth disparity, like the biggest wealth gap in the country. And that's because the other side of it is the other Asian immigrants that come into this country are refugees because the United States just bombed and destroyed right. their country. I mean, 
the number, the pounds of bombs that we dropped on Laos and Cambodia during the Vietnam War and the Secret War was totaled more than we dropped on Japan during World War II. Mm -hmm. Like, and so when we see, I tell my students, when you see refugees, you can almost guarantee that the United States has bombed that country. Um, like that's what that means. And so, and refugees we know are placed when they're brought into this country are placed in extreme poverty. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so that is perpet, like that's where that wealth gap comes from. I could talk about this topic all day. Um, (laughs) no, it's good. It's good. And as you're talking, I'm really thinking about, I mean, I'm taking notes on a variety of things that are coming to mind. One, I actually was thinking about, um, a group I follow on Instagram called South Asians for black lives. Yeah. And part of one of the things I, I love about what I follow following them and the, and their work is it's not an either or conversation. Like you can talk about multiple atrocities. You talk about multiple oppressed peoples. You can call for um, like the the unoppression. Wow, what's the word? <laughs> like you can call for justice. There we go. Yeah. Uh, sorry, it's late here in Abu Dhabi. Uh, you can call <laughs> for justice for a group of people and still acknowledge that another group of people is fr- is not necessarily further behind, but is still further, is also oppressed still, right? And yeah. so just like, how do we get away from, even I have to check my own language around it. And so I really love following them because they are fantastic about advocating, advocating for black lives. And then also they post a lot of interesting things um, in terms of what we've been discussing here around uh, the Asian American community and just specific needs within South Asians, um, specifically, I guess, getting more precise around that. Yeah. And I, I think recognizing that, um, in a caste system that the, the pitting against like the, the caste versus lower caste versus lower caste. So that the focus of honestly, the majority of the country, isn't focused on dismantling the upper caste, right? It it is a, it is a tool and a weapon that the upper caste implements. And so by placing like refugees into these really high, um, like into poverty, right? So, um, these communities are now living amongst each other and the resentment that cr- that creates. So with these refugees, they're oftentimes placed in community, redlined communities, meaning that there's a high percentage of Black Americans living in these communities with these now refugees. And they're pit against each other and the resentment of each other. And so they, that like, I know that with the increase of Asian hate crimes that has been cropping up in the last mm-hmm. several months, right? Um, the the significant increase in Asian hate crimes in the United States right now is appalling. And I've seen so many um, like videos of people calling out like black Americans and then calling out Asian Americans and like, where were you for this? And where were you for that? Yeah, right. And without recognizing like, that's not like, that is a tool of white supremacy is to yeah. pit immigrant, like, like people of color against people of color. Like y'all, that's not the problem. The -hmm. problem is white supremacy. Like, ding, 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 yeah. Right? And so um, I read in preparation for this 
episode, I read the most amazing article on um, time.com. And so one of the quotes that he wrote about was like, this is what it means to be a model minority, to be invisible in most circumstances, because we are doing what we are supposed to be doing. Like my parents, until we become hyper visible, because we are doing what we do too well, like the Korean shopkeepers, then the model minority becomes the Asian invasion and the Asian American model minority, which had served to prove the success of capitalism, Mm. bears the blame when capitalism fails. I, that article, so this is going to be my fudging homework. Yeah. I have read it twice through now. It is just so beautifully written. And the points that are made are amazing, but it just, it shows, okay, so why Asian hate crimes are at an, at a high yeah. right now. Right. So it's like, you're, you're one of us until you're not. And, yeah. um, until yeah. you become problematic. Anyway, it just, that quote is, I got chills when I was reading it. So I think we've talked about. Um, well, actually, so I w- as you were talking about this, I do have I do have a, please, a segue. Please, please. Um, no, as you were talking about this, I was think- just going to ask you, how do you think um, being in COVID times is has exacerbated this problem, or has drip- made more divide, or maybe in some cases has brought more people together? I say that with question because you yeah. know I'm trying to be the a teacher and offer multiple sides, but I already have my own opinions here. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about that, right? So where has this been aggravated um, because of coronavirus? I mean, the China virus. Like, hey, it, it is, this has, the United States has become dangerous for Asian Americans. Yeah. It has. And, and it is absolutely because of the rhetoric of politicians in this country. Without a doubt, no question in my mind that um then like so 45 made this country significantly more dangerous to asian americans yeah. and yeah. and we see the ramifications of that in the mass shootings that have now been targeted at asian americans mm-hmm. the hate crimes mm-hmm. i mean acid being thrown on yeah. an asian grandmother walking like out out of her home like it is horrific it's horrific. Yeah. And it is absolutely the result of rhetoric coming from the leaders in this country mm-hmm. and emboldening mm-hmm. racist, racist mm-hmm. people. Yeah, I am reflecting back to a conversation I had last year in that like May, April range where we started to see a bit of a spike and news, at least news was reporting it. Right. So take take that for whatever that means. Um, and there was a, a large conversation with some family friends who were like, well, I don't think there's really a rise of hate crimes. And I'm like, cool story. Y'all are white folks in this thread arguing that there's no rise in hate crimes. Like literally every Asian American person that I, and I know uh, quite a handful and I'm related to a yeah. lot. <laughs> like the, Every single person has a story that's either directly happened to them or someone that they love and care about that, you know, their their mom, their sister, their their sibling, their kid. Right. I mean, you don't have to be. I just was so blown away with just the disconnect. Right. They're like, no, it's not. Yeah. It has nothing to do with the language. And finally, a couple other white allies came in and we were like, it doesn't matter what we think is our perception of this. Like, let's look at 
people's stories. And these are not just, you know, one off. And then like, let's start the folks I was arguing with aren't really into data, but like there was data being collected around these issues to prove it as well. And so, you know, to your point, I think when we have leadership that has this language, we have leadership that approves of it and that perpetuates it, of course, it's going to be more problematic. And in the, in the last few months, it's been just so awful, as you said, so horrific. Yeah. And I think like I have experienced racism. Like I like one of the stories it's like, and I don't think people look at it as like overt racism, but like being warned against eating at Asian restaurants because they serve garbage fish. Like that's literally legit, like that they take garbage fish or they take like roadkill and like they take like, oh, you don't want to do that. Or, you know, comments of like the fears of um, a child in their family um, in college being placed with in a Japanese exchange student and like, don't like, you don't want that. That's really dangerous. Like not dangerous, but like, Ooh, bad influence. And who knows what Mm -hmm. they're going to be doing. And, and even when I'm like, they're, they're some of the most studious students because they're paying a lot of money to be there. Well, you can be studious and still do bad things, right? So it's like, I have had those things said to me. And yeah. I think that the veil of like presenting as white gives people mm. like, I have experienced a different kind, right? Where like, they feel yeah. like I'm one of them. White solidarity. Me, right, like white solidarity. Like, aren't like, you so ashamed? Like me. the subtext is like, aren't you so ashamed that you're a quarter Japanese, like, aren't you so grateful that you don't like appear Asian? Mm. Um, and anyway, so like, I can't imagine, and that was years ago. It's yeah. absolutely happening and it's being recorded. Like it, there are, yes. yeah. there's data that shows the increase in yeah. Asian hate crimes. So I think this is one of the reasons why this conversation is so important right now. And also as we're in the middle of this month, what does that mean for, ourselves as individuals to try to understand these issues, try to reconcile and also to honor like heritage, as we said. And I don't know, I kind of want to push back a little bit and say also honor the history that's there and like learn the history that is distinct and unique with each group within the, the initials that we have here within these letters. Um, So I'm thinking about that. And I'm wondering in terms of, because we always talk about teaching as well, like in terms of what is happening in schools, I find this month the least kind of acknowledged. Um, when it comes to education and maybe it's different at the university level, but I find at the high school level in my experience in high schools, it's really just kind of not, not talked about. (laughs) I would argue maybe not 1% of the time talked about. And I don't know if that's changing now. Um, I don't think so. Okay. My school here is definitely, um, we have, as I've said before, we've had an amazing human rights club group that has taken on um, just all of these different initiatives in terms of helping to to raise the visibility of different groups and has spent some time developing the curriculum for this month. So I'm really excited to see what they do with that. Yeah. Anecdotally, I can say that one of the lessons that I have carried over from my student teaching year from one Nate Bowling is teaching about... Um, the secret war during the Vietnam mm. War, right? Mm. So of Laos and Cambodia and what happened to those countries. And I, we teach it through the context of, um, right, like executive power and the War Powers mm-hmm. Act. Um, and that was the catalyst for the War's Power Act to limit the president's wartime power. Um, every single year that I have taught that lesson, I have had 
at least one student, usually it's more than one email me saying, oh, I've never heard this talked about during class. Like my mom like came as a refugee from that time, right? Like my mom is Cambodian and I've never had a teacher like teach that during class. And um, like without fail every single year, I've had at least one student like mention that or in during class, like have students raise their hand and share their family's experience with that story. Mm-hmm. And so even just anecdotally, I have experienced in the classroom, like highlighting those histories and those stories and treating them with the respect that they deserve, as well as the severity and heaviness of that that historical moment in time and how it impacted like thousands and thousands of lives. Um, and so, yeah, educate yourself and, and educate those around you. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and then also like examine your own implicit bias. I think that implicit bias is significant with, within the white community or like the white community. And so it's like, but like white space, <laughs> we're a monolith. Yeah, uh, the, the monolith we're taking over. Um, but like just that implicit bias that you have, like you might not recognize how damaging your implicit bias around Asian Americans are, but in fact it yeah. is. And, and usually in the erasure of their experience and their heritage. Yeah, that's good. Well, that kind of leads us to our last segment because I feel like you kind of jumped, jumped, jumped into that already. You want to just say it? Oh, well, we have two, don't we? Just do the last one. Okay. So do your fudging homework. Interchangeable. Right, ladies. Perfect. I think we're like raising a glass anyway as we talk about yes. like the different things we love. Mine was going to be the same. Just, you just already like laid out some homework, right? In terms yeah. of educating ourselves. Um, you actually have an interesting one around Asian hate crimes. You want to talk a little bit about that? Contacting your representatives? Oh. Is that not your idea? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In so, our show notes? Um, I was like, <laughs> wait, what? Um, so, yeah, there are a couple bills um, that have been proposed just specifically acknowledging, like, um, Asian hate crimes. I, I can think of two specifically. I'm not sure where they're at, the status of those. But contact your representatives and throw your support behind them. Um passing legislation that is going to officially and specifically decry Asian hate crimes in this country. So that's definitely one of my pieces of homework. Mm, Awesome. Um, I think my homework is uh, look through your, who are the voices that you listen to? And I've, I've said this homework before, look through your social media. Who do you follow? Who do you have conversations with? Who do you listen to? Who do you read? And look through and do a bit of an audit right? Are you getting perspectives of Asian American Pacific Islanders? Are, are you breaking that apart and getting different mm-hmm. points of view from folks within that, um, that quote unquote group that we've been talking about today? And then if you're not, what can you do about it? Like, obviously we've said before, don't just go try to make a black friend. Like, don't just try to go make a Cambodian friend or a Chinese friend or whatever in an awkward way on the streets. Okay. But <laughs> start to pay attention. Like, don't do it. Just start just to pay attention <laughs> and look at your, look at yourself, look at your networks, and then think about how do you expand that and how do you get different points of view, different perspectives. So as I said earlier, um, South Asians for Black Lives, uh, following them, fantastic. A couple of authors I really love, Jeff Chang. I've talked about We Gonna Be All Right a million times on this podcast. Uh, love that book. I just started a book called Dial A for Aunties, which is a Chinese, uh, Indonesian, American, Jesse Sitanto, um, 
I'm really excited. It's a really fun, like mystery kind of uh, book. And it's, it's, it's great so far. Uh, Randy Ribai, also Filipino American writer, writes fantastic young adult fiction um, that's based in reality and, and true stories. So those are just a couple of the folks. Oh, um, and I, I would even say like, watch, okay, we all have Netflix out here, right? Watch shows that can help change your paradigm or expand a different yes. part of the world to you, even if they're fiction, right? So I, I I think I've talked before about how much I love the show Kim's Convenience. Yeah. And the first time I started watching it, I had that moment in my side of myself where I was like, uh, is this like going to be stereotyping or is this going to be like challenging the status quo around it? And so the more I watched the show, talked to a few Korean American families and friends, and then kind of looking into, you know, the story behind the show as well, again, trying to bring in representation um, for that community and specifically in Canada, right? So a little bit different than the United States, but I think the more we can watch and read and just expose ourselves, the more we can deal with the internal bias you brought up earlier. Yeah. My brother loves that show as well. Like can't recommend it highly enough. Um, I, you know, and that's, that's how my AP students feel when I give homework at the end of class was just that. I just want to point that out. What <laughs> word vomited on you all? Oh yeah, yeah. All the recommendations. All of the that's well, I, I and then I also want to end by saying that um, please go read the article. Asian Americans are still yes. caught in the top of the model minority stereotypes, and it creates inequality for all. It's linked in the show notes. That was the Time article that I quoted from, um, and that I said like I have read twice through. I'm going to go read it again probably later today. It is just. Um, beautifully written, so many fantastic and amazing um, quotes and moments and lessons um, reading through his experiences. Yeah. Uh, One final thing. um, I mean, a lot of you know that I have connections in the Philippines and have like um, just, I, f- I feel a connection to a Filipino community, but it's different than a Filipino American community. Anyway, I'm interested in both of those things. And I've p- pulled some resources. I'm having some interesting conversation with my Filipino American friends and Filipino family members that are in the Philippines. And so that's even different, but it, it, it's adding to my own understanding around these issues. And so I'm putting some of those resources in the, in the show notes as well. Um, if folks are interested in kind of exploring that issue also. All right. Thank you all for listening. Bye. Bye. Did you know Channel 253 is member-supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership and join. Thank you. Need to cough up my uh, Korean chicken that I just had for dinner. The Interchangeable White Ladies podcast is part of the Channel 253 network. Check out our other shows. Nerd Farmer, Citizen Tacoma, Crossing Division, Flounder's B-Team, We Art Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.